0: This is an ABC podcast.
1: This is World War Two, which as everyone knows happened elsewhere, or did it. People aren't aware of how close the war came to Australia and um, just how vulnerable the coastline was. Some secrets are still being told, and this is one of them.
2: From an enemy point of view, if you're going to attack one's shipping, this is probably the the best place to be.
1: And we're talking about Mallacoota, Victoria's most easterly town on the coast near the New South Wales border. It's a magic holiday spot with a hidden war story. The story of
2: the bunker got lost in the big international stories of the tragedy of World War II. The bunker was established um, by the RAF, the Royal Australian Air Force, during World War II, which was based on um, wireless communications with trained wireless operators. This Air Force facility was regarded as being vital
1: for the defence of Australia. Hi, I'm Rebecca Huntley and this is the History Listen. Today, the story of Malakuta's secret bunker. During the war, the bunker was out of town and off limits to locals, and guards stood at the bridge near the entrance to the area. But today that's all changed, and the bunker has become a museum. Lynn Gallagher is there now with Pierre Fossier. He's one of the museum's many volunteers, and together they're ushering in the visitors.
3: How are we going? Hi.
0: Oh, yeah, how are you going? <laughs> now, I'll put a movie on for you. It will tell you what happened here. Okay.
3: The movie you see when you come to the Malakuta bunker is a revelation. It stars historian Sarah Mirrams and some pretty amazing locals.
0: And if you keep that and go to the web page at home, you can actually view it home and show your family oh, and God. friends and it's a movie that
3: won an award oh, oh, right. first okay. prize in
0: victoria
3: oh, oh, okay. this whole bunker has been a huge creative collective effort which is still going on today as each visitor brings their own story in through the door
4: we went to another museum an aircraft museum and it had the story of an American pilot and they didn't officially identify him for a while because they, they could, and eventually they found a watch or something which the family could identify. That, that's right. Is well, that the same one?
0: Yeah, there's a bloke that's in the sale. Thing. Yes, yep. that's it, yes. Yeah, He spent 30 years trying to get that fellow
3: recognised. More customers. It means that this revitalised bunker is doing now what it always used to do, working as a transmitter and receiver of information.
2: Ah, oh, made it. Thank you. We got you. along the way
0: and said oh, you haven't got any money with us. Now, we've, we've got a movie going out we've just put it on for another couple oh, of weeks. Okay. So
3: During it's the, the war, it shared secrets. And today, year. it's doing it again.
0: Excellent. And it, it'll explain a lot of information, a lot of detail.
3: This is one of those visitors with one of those secrets. On.
0: My father, he was on this ship called the Warrnambool and I sort of, um, he died 20 years ago and so I, I got all his stuff together and a little flag at the Warrnambool and so forth and had these photographs that he took when the Japanese bombed Darwin and he was standing on the deck with his little brownie box camera and, and I at these and Dad's was riding on the side of it and uh, so he had a friend up in, in Darwin at the museum so I am sending it up to him. And then I went to a hardware store, like a local hardware store, and I said, oh, "You wouldn't believe it. You know, my dad was on the Warrnambool and you know. He's and the guy behind the counter said, "I was on the morning ball as well." And I thought, "Hang on, it doesn't work like this, you know." But he—he he was an officer. Dad was a stoker down underneath, you know, keeping the, the thing going. But it was just extraordinary. The the time that I found all his stuff was the time that that guy said, "Yeah, I was on." The
3: I was ball. there too. Yeah,
0: I, uh, Dad never said anything. I, you know, it was only when he died that I dug out all his stuff and found out where he was and what he did. And all
3: this bunker was a communications bunker for the RAAF. It was the number one base for coastal intelligence in the region during World War II. The job was to keep the shipping lanes open. This involved pilots in tiny planes spotting Japanese submarines off the coast.
0: In February of 1942, the bombing of Darwin shook Australian foundations.
3: The information from the sky was then transmitted to the bunker and sent to East Sail, and on to Melbourne. Between June
0: 1942 and June 1943, 13 Japanese submarines operating off the east coast of Australia claimed 22 Allied ships, 12 of which were
2: Australian. Australia was vulnerable. It followed the attack on Darwin, the attack on Sydney Harbour. I think our government or defence people were really starting to think about how vulnerable um, our coastline was.
0: Although initially the war felt far away from the shores of Malakuta, as it progressed, the outside world increasingly influenced the
5: small town. I was still going to school. I was about 12 years of age when war broke out. Only young, but I used to like listen to the news. And I tell you what, there for a while, it didn't look well, which way the war was gonna go, you know. In that sense, we were you know, quite aware of it.
4: We only had a lady school teacher during the war days. And they got us to dig a big hole in the ground like a bunker, <laughs> so if it came near the school, we'd all go into it. But uh, we made sure the windows were covered with this black-looking tape.
3: This short movie, made by the Tiny Empire Collective with historian Sarah Mirams and Joe Grant from the Malakuta Historical Society, also features longtime locals Cess and My Own Wilson. They still live in Mallacoota, not far from the museum. Knock knock.
6: Yeah, come in, here, um, here You go. Hi. Hello. <laughs>
3: hello, hello. This is Ces. Hello, Sess. Hello, I'm Lynn. And they call you Mai? Yeah. These two, Sess and Mai, were teenagers during the war. At the time, the bunker was off limits. Not only because of the guards at the entrance, but because there were charges laid around the perimeter so that in the case of a Japanese invasion, the whole facility, including the aerodrome, could be destroyed.
4: That's the fellow that was CEO of the aerodrome down here, George Weiber. That's my dad. I don't know who that fellow is. OK, so we're looking at beautiful little box brownie, yeah. black
3: and white photo of three and men. That's a
4: very old one, the Malakuta Salmon Fish Company. They used to take fish in that truck up to Naruma to the factory up there. That's my Irish grandfather there. Oh, lovely. And uh, this is Malakuta, all Bust, of written. That's Monk and Tony. That's taken very much back in the early days. During the war, Mai's father had the job of taking the mail
3: out to the radar station on Gabo Island, and her mother took milk supplies out to the bunker. At its height, there were about 70 men stationed here at this base, with another 35 stationed out on Gabo Island.
4: I got this at a second-hand shop, as you see, and the woman had put a whole heap of rubbish in it. Before she became a Wilson, Mai was a Brady and the granddaughter of the journalist and
3: writer Edwin J. Brady. He wrote the encyclopaedic illustrated tome Australia Unlimited.
4: He did a lot of work in it. Grandfather... DJ, e. but e. so like Mai, Edwin e. Brady. Brady.
3: And he was a poet and a writer and a short storyteller. Yeah. Like the old sort of Henry Lawson.
4: Henry Lawson used to come on holiday in Malacuta with him. Along with her photos, Mai shows me a copy of this book. And he had just completed in 1944 a new edition of it when, uh, of course, war was on and he, it never got printed and got burnt. So all his good work got lost. The second edition to this one.
3: Okay, so tell me about what this one was. Why is this significant to the story of the bunker?
4: Ah, uh, well, I saw the early history of Malakoota that he wrote, and you know, plus all around Australia, he travelled around Australia, and he took all the photos that are in this book. He took himself, so it's also the writing, the photos he took himself of it. And how many copies did you there Was?
5: It's a bought, I believe
4: the uh, the Japanese, Japanese Japanese brought a thousand copies just before the war of this book.
3: In order to, what do you think, why, what was their reason?
4: Well, they knew the history of Australia because it's- Where it was I think. Mm. So
3: it's like, like it. um, instead of having to um, do your own research on your enemy, you just-
4: you... Just open up this book and there's Malakuda and all the other towns in it and yeah. The
3: idea of the information in these books, being absorbed by Japanese submariners as they sat off the coast here, is astonishing. And the fact that the second edition was pulped because it gave too much away, who knew? At the time, Sess was living about an hour away in Cairn River. He was 12 when war broke out. Did you know that there were Japanese submarines around? Yep. Did you? Oh, yeah. Tell me that.
5: Well, they were sighted off here, and uh, they torpedoed out a boat just off Gabe Island. I remember that quite. I was about 17 when that happened. And, uh, and the police used to have to do a patrol on the beach every, every month, I think. I think that was mainly to see if there was any footprints up the beach into the hills, that sort of thing, in case anyone come ashore. Were there? I don't think not to overheard of, no.
3: But this issue of the footprints is still controversial. Show, show oh. Lin the Japanese. So what are we looking at here? There's a note in the Bunker uh-huh. Museum, alongside what looks like a wetsuit booty. Oh, there's two. Two, well that makes yeah. sense, doesn't it? <laughs> Japanese yeah. combat, combat boots. boots. yeah. Distinctive footprints left by these boots were found on our shores during World War II. It's believed they were left there by Japanese sailors who came ashore from submarines, probably in search of safe water. So it wasn't that wasn't the actual slipper that was found. It was just saying footprints of these were found.
6: It's just demonstrating the type
3: of footprint. Yeah, sneak boots. Sneak boots.
6: <laughs> There's a story of one of the young local lads who come across a footprint of the Japanese um, booty that you just saw with the, all the toes concealed in one compartment and the big toes separately. And he reported it to some authorities here and he was told not to tell anybody. And he didn't, apparently didn't even tell his parents until many years later.
3: Yes, yeah. This means that the story is technically hearsay and it was considered too anecdotal to be included in the Bunker movie. But at the time, it was risky to talk of such things. You could be charged with spreading rumours that were likely to cause alarm. And fines for this were a month's wages plus court costs. They were meted out in the Sale Police Court.
5: Well, I heard, I heard not at the time, but I believe there was more boats sunk than they let on. And according to that map I saw just recently, there was heaps of them that were torpedoed up and down the coast. But, uh, yeah, probably they, I don't think they probably told the truth about everything, they kept a lot to themselves, I think. Didn't want the public to get panicky.
3: Certainly, things were worse than the public ever knew, particularly for pilots. No-one wanted the enemy to know just exactly how many planes fell out of the sky due to technical faults. These machines were supposed to be the pride of the nation, All the locals knew was that sometimes the highway was closed so that wreckages could be carted back to Melbourne for spare parts. And as for the footprints? Well, they do lead to further stories. And museum volunteer Eileen Buckland can't see why it doesn't stand to reason. The submariners would have had to come to shore for fresh water. They were off the coast for months and months.
7: Yes and um, even we've got a a slipper in the glass cabinet there of
3: one of the Japanese. And besides, she likes following the tracks.
7: Quite a few folk went from here to war and it's amazing how important the radio stations and everything here were. And I get a thrill when people come and their husbands or grandfathers had fought in the war here in Mallacoota and their stories that they tell us. That's the real interesting part. So um, we're learning as well. So what are some of those stories? Well, they had no idea um, of how many ships were outside and how close the Japanese came.
3: And they were close. (laughs) On the 4th of June, 1942, The ship, the Iron Crown, was torpedoed by the Japanese off the coast here. 38 were killed. It was carrying ore. It sank in 60 seconds. The museum's caretaker, Chris Parker, shows me the newspaper clippings. And Eileen's keen to point out the map.
6: smaller submarine sink in the, the Iron Crown, which we were talking about here. This it was obviously a newspaper clipping of the survivors. So it was made public back in oh, wow. your oh, wow. right. the back All right. Yeah. This was just one
7: quick, everybody's amazed at how many mm-hmm. um, the ships that attacked or sunk off the southeast coast of Australia during 1940,
3: 1940 so 1944. So this is torpedo. Yeah, yes. so shelled. OK. So there's a lot of them, yes. Um, but, OK, so off the coast here, you've got five ships
6: that were sunk during World War II. The first time the, the local historical society become aware of this is with the ship, the Iron Crown, when a fellow called George Fisher come and spoke to our members, and he was 17 years old at the time, I believe, and um, he, he come and told us a story of the Japanese coming along and the torpedo coming towards the ship and he had just come up from below deck and he was one of the six survivors and he put up a, a memorial plaque in the centre of Mullacoota where the war memorial is in, in memory of those that were lost and and uh, a name of the survivors. So we've got George Fisher was one of the survivors, McKelvey, M-
7: McKelvey. M- McKelvey. Yeah. Millie,
3: Roach and Sebastian. So it is amazing when people who were connected with this area and were on these ships and survived and probably they weren't allowed to talk about it at the time because it was a secret, secret. and now years later they can come back and say I was on that ship when it was torpedoed. That's exactly
6: yes. what happened. Yeah. Yeah.
3: Amazing.
7: Yes.
3: Yeah. George Fisher died in 2012. But hearing his story makes me wonder if any of the Japanese submariners or their descendants would come back here. And if
6: they did, would they be welcome?
3: Do you have Japanese tourists through?
6: We have Japanese students and come through, but it would be brilliant to actually meet descendants. Yeah, it would be terrific. Because they were, how brave are you?
3: Brave? Yes, absolutely. These submarines had small planes tucked inside them so that when they surfaced, the top could become a runway and tiny planes were catapulted into the air. They were known as Yokosuka float planes and their wings folded back when they were stored inside the sub. One of the pilots who took to the air in this fashion was the Warrant Flying Officer for the Imperial Japanese Navy, Nobuo Fujita. He's known to have flown a reconnaissance mission over Port Phillip Bay and the Melbourne suburbs of St Kilda, Brighton, Sandringham, Dramana, and Cape Shank. In the course of his flight, he noted the industrial areas, the shipping activity on the bay, and recorded the presence of a light cruiser and five destroyers. His flight was around 3 a.m. on Thursday, the 26th of February, 1942. We know this, not only because it was logged by the RAF, but because Nabuo's next official flight became famous. It was a flight over North America and made Nabuo the only person to have ever dropped bombs on the United States mainland.
8: 1942, the day the United States mainland came under enemy attack during World War II. For that was the day pilot Nobuo Fujita firebombed a forest near Brookings, Oregon. Launched from a submarine off the Pacific coast, Fujita piloted his small plane to a spot just north of the California border, as he recalled years later. <laughs>
6: The mission scared the daylight out of me. I did not think I would come back
8: alive. He dropped two incendiary bombs, neither of which touched off the massive fire that was hoped for. And despite his fears, he did make it back alive. 20 years later, Fujita made a return trip to Brookings, this time as a guest at the annual Azalea Festival.
6: I did not know how people would react to me. I thought they would throw stones or eggs or worse.
8: Though some objected to his visit, no objects were thrown, and he presented the town with a samurai sword as a gesture of peace.
3: This 400-year-old sword that now rests in Oregon is likely to have accompanied Abuo during his time off the coast of Australia. It was traditional to carry these swords into battle as a reminder of family and the generations that had passed the sword down. Nabuo only gave it away because in the final months of the war, he trained kamikaze pilots, but after his younger brother was killed, he became a pacifist, saying, if we understood each other as friends, this foolish war would never have happened. It's astonishing, but the Malakuta bunker does have samurai swords, but their secrets are still hidden. We've
6: got some samurai swords, which in due course, with a bit more research, if we can trace the families that did own them, the Japanese families, because... Where do
3: you think
6: they were found? Like... They could have been found on the battleground, I don't know, so that's another so many projects. <laughs> <laughs> OK, I'll do the lights. At...
3: Outside the bunker, there's even more surprises if you follow the transmission wires in the trees. That... Here in the bush, there's the remains of the bunkers surrounding service buildings, such as the recreation hall, yep. the barracks, and the officer's mess. Um... So we are probably walking in a central corridor. And what do you think, this was a chimney or something?
6: This must have been their main cooking area, I would would assume. So... And there's a bit of corrugated iron,
3: sort of, or old... What's this, you reckon?
6: Old flashing, maybe, corrugated iron. So once again, after the war, all of these buildings were sold off at a public auction. We do have records, some records of that back at the, the Bunker Museum.
3: So the buildings were sold off, but, but not the land, so they took the, the material. Land.
6: Yeah, so they took all the material. There was a cinema here that was um, purchased by one of our local residents, uh, Billy Bruce, and he actually ran a cinema at Malakuta out of that, where the uh, Malakuta Silver Brim is now located. And um, that was one of his uh, little enterprises he took on after, after the war, along with his uh, boat hire business. And it was very good of bill because he actually um, donated some pieces of aircraft that uh, actually crashed just off the the Mullacoota runway into the quarry.
3: Because you had three aircraft that came down in World War II?
6: Um, Around the Mullacoota area, that's right. There were several mishaps around the the airport itself, but this one in particular where some uh, crewmen lost their lives, and those sort of things that we need to have more information about um, on, with those displays which our members are working on gradually but we, we do need more volunteers to achieve a lot of these things that we've been talking about today, just, just to t- tie up a lot of loose strings. The loose strings
3: may never be tied up completely, but the award winning Malakuta Bunker movie was definitely knitting up the yarn in that direction.
2: They had social life, they had dances here, and they had um, film, they had a, a bit of a movie theatre set up in their mess, and, and um,
4: that meant that the local people did get involved. Oh, it was good because I used to put pictures on down at the aerodrome and have an annual Saturday night dance and all the local women and kids would go and dance, you know. So, yeah, it was good.
3: And the more this story is threaded together, the more the locals find out about themselves and each other. Mm-hmm. Remember, Sess and
0: Mike. Where so you just come from? Yeah. I was at the news agency, and we only came, came in. Oh, this is about three or four years ago, uh, from my memory. And she said, "It was 62 years ago last night. I met Sess at the dance at Genoa."
3: When Pierre told me this, I wished I'd known it before I spoke to mine. She didn't tell me that dancing had led her to the love of her life,
4: but she did tell me this. I used to have dances once a month uh, in the uh, recreational hall the Air Force had, and I used to bring the girls out in busloads from Auburn and Bansdale because there was no girls here, really. <laughs> Did you go to those dances? Oh yes, I was only about nine and I was first up on the floor. The Air Force fellows knew I could dance so that didn't matter there that I was only a bit of a kid. Yeah, I loved dancing. Yeah,
3: yeah. <laughs> Young men who were very pleased. <laughs> to just have company, probably they were lonely.
4: Yes, yes, yeah. It was pretty isolated here in those days, you know. What so. about the movie nights? Ah uh, yes, I had pictures at the aerodrome. And we, they'd send a tender into the area, in the hotel area here, for anyone that didn't go, hadn't a car to go out, and could get a ride out, and they took them out there too. Yeah, it was good.
3: And while this might seem like a long time ago, it really isn't. Not when you know that things are still being unearthed, like, well, like a cricket pitch.
6: Okay, so sorry. Say again. What? <laughs> What have we got? So, what we've got here is that this would have been their sports ground. So, from, this is a cricket pitch, concrete cri- cricket pitch, Mullacoota's first cricket ground, the MCG. Probably built around about somewhere between 1938 and 1945. And so they a had to have concrete
3: ago. cricket pitch because it would have been sand dune otherwise, or...?
6: Yeah, very sandy soil here, that would be quite right. Yeah, definitely.
3: How would you <laughs> plug the stumps in if it's concrete? You'd have to
6: Well, off the probably off the end here, I'd imagine, unless there's a square bit in here where they would have put the...
3: And this is just totally covered in tea tree now?
6: Yeah, more or less, yeah. Twigs and, and leaf, yeah. And
3: yeah, not a lot of room for slips. Not at all. I love it that it's all and still being uncovered. This yeah. is all very old history, but recent history at the same time.
6: Yeah, that's right. And a lot of locals haven't even seen this, and it's only just recently that I brought. Seth Wilson who's in his in his nineties now, and he's lived in Mullacoota his whole life. And it was only a few weeks ago I brought him out and showed him this, and um, he said he couldn't. He, he had no idea it was here. Now, have you pasted it yeah. out? Is it the
3: correct length? One chain is a cricket pitch. <laughs>
6: OK, let's uh, measure the length of this and see how we go. So as I
3: leave one, these wonderful locals and their marvellous bunker, I'm thinking not only will the volunteers have to work hard to keep up with the story, but they may have to make a sequel to their movie, one that involves samurai swords and a cricket pitch.
6: 19, 19 metres. So it's a bit this is
3: short. Somewhere around here there's going to be... Cricket balls. Cricket balls and old stumps. <laughs> Um, And lots of stories, about the one that got away.
1: And just in case you're wondering, the award that the Bunker Movie won was a Victorian Community History Award best multimedia presentation for 2018. You can watch it online. It's called Secrets from the Bunker and the link is on our website. Thanks today to technical producer Angie Grant and producer Lynn Gallagher for bringing us their version of this story. I'm Rebecca Huntley and this is the History Listen. Thanks so much for your company. You've been listening to an ABC podcast.